Well, I'm back, and I'm so thankful you're listening to this episode. So I'm going to rewind a bit. In response to the deaths of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, I joined Blackout Tuesday along with other podcasters to shine a light on their deaths. I also want to show my support for Black Lives Matter and pass the mic to allow other voices of color to be heard. As I prepared for my next episode, The Flag, I hit the pause button, did some soul searching, did some recordings, and hit the pause button again. After another month of time, I decided to go for it. I reached to the top of my list of who I wanted on my podcast, Ted K. Ted is the author of a handbook that I've kept near to me for years. Good flag, bad flag. Ted was a guest in one of my podcast storytelling heroes, Roman Mars. In fact, Ted talked flags with Roman on his sixth podcast episode. So having Ted come aboard is a dream come true. Thanks to Ted's generosity of time, we chatted for over two hours. I'll be honest, I could have continued talking for another two hours. I can promise you, you're going to learn a lot about flags, and I think you'll find it really interesting. We're also going to explore a U.S. city that has one of the most enduring flags in existence. And we're also going to have a conversation about today and a couple of flags that are controversial. So before we get started, in honor of Ahmad and Brianna and George, nine bells. I'm Gino Church. You're listening to the Shared Ship Podcast. This is Captain's Log 4, The Flag, Episode 1. So let's jump right into my conversation with Ted K. I want to play you something and let you, I told you about a video uh-huh. of the school inspired by your book. And I thought this would be worth you seeing. It's really short. So let sure. me share my screen. 
All right, and see if you can see this video. So here it goes. Obviously, because we're such a warm and loving community here. And then our little paw prints stand for wisdom, honor, service, and community. So this is a compass. And you'll notice that we don't have north, south, east, west. It looks the same no matter which way you go. So it's about um, that spark, which we believe this yellow uh, represents that as far as that spark in yourself. But also that exploring, that going into uncharted territories and um, mapping your future and voice and choice. So ours is similar in that it's all about the journey and not necessarily the destination and developing each child where they are. And so we chose the three paths to represent wisdom, honor, and service, but to also represent the different paths that each of our kids can take. But they can also come together in the center and a sense of community and all of our shared values. And so that's where we stand. Cool. So I won't bore you with the rest, but I thought you might find that interesting. So were those teachers? They were teachers and parents. The, the first woman you saw that was running through, that was a parent. Uh-huh. One was an administrator. The other, I believe, was another parent. So, but it's, it's fascinating, not to get us off of getting started, but I, I, I loved it in your book, and I, I did things with little Post-it notes. And So what, what was that exercise for? Was it kind of team building or, or get everybody on the same page or... Working on the same flag. <laughs> so for me, what, you know, most of my work is in community, which is fascinating how I think it dovetails into what you're doing with cities. Most of my work is community building for brands, organizations, associations. In this case, it was a private school. And they brought me down to talk um, community. And at first they wanted me to do a word of mouth talk. And I told them about this pirate thing that I was doing about um, defining your fight, your code, your flag, your crew, and your yarn. And so that was just one exercise after they'd already have, had done their fight and they did their code. I got them to create a symbol for their ship that represented that fight and that code. So that's what that was. Interesting. Uh, and and pretty good designs, too. Yeah, for, yeah, you know, I, and that's the thing, maybe we can talk about that later as you talk about design. But I, I found it interesting that when I gave them that, that flag, that, that looked like a, really, a real flag, gave them magic markers, they really were prepared to color it. They did their doodling beforehand, and they put something beautiful on that fabric. That was fascinating. Uh-huh. fascinating. That's great. Well, as far as the three designs that I saw, uh, I like to say that in every bad flag design, there's a good design trying to get out. And those were that. those were okay designs, and each of them could have been improved somewhat um, uh, with very minor tweaks. For example, the the third one with the three curves in it didn't need to have three curves on a blue square on a white background. It could have just been on a blue background. Uh, the uh, The compass rose could have been simplified. Uh, because it kind of washed out in the middle of that big white 
uh, background. And in fact, they might have changed the, the color of the background if you'd had different technology. But uh, that was great to see how they yeah. they came up with those designs. Well, what I, what I was fascinating fascinated by, Ted, is how they used it to tell a story. Uh-huh. And, and that's, I, I don't know, I think that's where there's, there's so much power in the flag. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself, what you do, um, and then this thing that I probably will mispronounce if it's vexicological, but what, what is the study of flags, that wonderful name, and a little bit about NAVA. I'm Ted Kay. I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm a retired tech company CFO. I've had a long career in banking, telecommunications, nonprofits, historical societies, and a lot of nonprofit involvement. But my scholarly interest is flags. The study of flags is vexillology. Vexillology from the Latin vexillum for flag and ology, the Greek ology for study of. Vexillology is the study of flags, although my wife says it's called vexillology because it's vexing and silly. <laughs> so what got you started in this? Why, why, why did it, um, you know, I, I touch your heart, your soul, your mind, whatever it was? My interest in flags began as seeing them as travel mementos, travel trophies. I drove across the country after high school and we engaged in placing stickers on the back window as we went through each state. And that was probably my first introduction to a flag as representing that I'd been to some place. Later in college, I backpacked through Central America and in every country that I traveled through, I would acquire a patch with a flag and sew it onto my backpack to show I'd been to that place. Then later, I lived in Chile, working for the third largest bank in Chile, and traveled around South America and uh, the South Pacific. And I began buying the flags of the places I'd traveled to, and I started a collection of flags. For my flag collection, I have two rules. The first is I have to have been to the place to own the flag. That spares my friends the perceived obligation to try to find me a flag when they travel. I have to have been to the place. And second, the flag has to come from that place. The flag has to be the flag that the people of that place actually use. So. I have a large collection of flags that represents my travels that are flags of nations, of states and provinces, of cities, of other institutions like yacht clubs, universities, of events, of other kinds of organizations. And each of those flags represents something that I've done so I have a personal relationship to what the flag itself represents. Those are great rules. I collect stickers, especially national park stickers. And Ted, I do pretty much the same thing. I buy the stickers when I'm there in person. I have no desire to buy them online. But you really sparked something else. Um, on a recent trip to Florida, my wife and I passed 
motor lodges. And it brought back these memories of staying there at motor lodges, especially down in Florida with my mom and dad and up in the mountains with my grandparents. And I was just reflecting back on that. Um, as a young person, I was really lucky to do that. And some people are not. And especially now, um, that's just something that we're not doing. And it's, I don't know, it's, we're missing something there. Well, in, in some ways, in some ways, modern technology has reduced the need to travel to get to see places yeah. because the internet can take you anywhere. Google Street View can take you anywhere. But uh, for me, uh, a few years ago, uh, in 2005, I had been the executive director of the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial in Oregon. And I was involved in helping to plan the last of the major national events commemorating the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial. They'd started in 2003 at Monticello, and the final one was in November of 2005 in Astoria, commemorating the end of the expedition, uh, or the expedition reaching the Pacific Coast. And as part of that bicentennial commemoration, I had helped the planners at the national level understand that Lewis and Clark not only went through the, uh, went through the territory of what is now 17 different U.S. states, but they also went through the homelands of 56 different tribal nations on their way. And the initial ideas for flag display at these national events was to have the flags of all the states that Lewis and Clark had been through. And I was in the room where it happened in the planning and helped place the idea of we also should be flying the flags of the tribal nations through whose homelands Lewis and Clark had traveled. And so throughout the entire bicentennial, the flags of the states and the flags of the tribes were used uh, in all of the major events and through the National Park Service's uh, Core 2 traveling exhibition. I arranged for that ex exhibition to receive a gift from a colleague of mine of all of those tri tribal flags. Wow. And uh, in each of the places, the uh, Core 2 event, which set up the flags of the tribe through which or in which the uh, event was taking place. So at the final e event of the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial in Astoria in November 2005, we had a procession of tribal flags of all 56 encounter tribes. Most of those flags were borne by a member of that tribe. And because it was Veterans Day, November 11th, 2005, those flag bearers were veterans. So tribal members bearing the flag of their tribe, each of them a veteran on Veterans Day, commemorating Lewis and Clark in a great tribal procession. That was a wonderful event. In the preparation for that event, uh, where the organizers also wanted to display the flags of the 17 states that Lewis and Clark's expedition had gone through, they borrowed those flags from me, and I was organizing my flag collection of state flags, and I got to wondering, how many states have I been to? 
how, how many flags do I have? And so I counted them up and I had 45 flags. I'd been to 45 states. I was short five states. And I thought, well, heck, you know, collect them all. Yeah. I need to go to the remaining five states. And as it turned out, the states were Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Alaska, and Wyoming. So I organized a trip actually to a flag studies conference in Nashville that involved a layover at Dallas-Fort Worth. And I made a great big long layover at Dallas-Fort Worth. And in that layover, I flew to Fort Smith, Arkansas, uh, and uh, went across the border to Oklahoma, came back, got back to Dallas-Fort Worth, and continued on to Nashville. And so I got three of my five states in one day there. Bought the flag in Moffat, Oklahoma, for example. And then uh, my wife and I, in the next couple of years, uh, organized uh, vacations in Wyoming and in Alaska. And so that got me all 50 states and therefore all 50 flags. That's awesome. So where did you buy your South Carolina flag? In Charleston. Ah, perfect. We actually held a meeting of the North American Vexillological Association, NAVA, in Charleston a few years ago. I was one of the organizers of that meeting. And I bought the flag actually in the, there's a, there's a public market there. And uh, I bought not only the South Carolina flag, but the flag that the Citadel flies, the red version of the South Carolina flag and a couple of other historic flags. That's awesome. Yeah. The red flag. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Furman uh, went to Furman, Furman fan, and they're our hated rival, the Citadel. So the we see the red flag at all the college football games. They fly the <laughs> they fly the red the red Palmetto flag. So um, uh, that's well, South South Carolina has a very distinctive historic flag with a great design. Interestingly, up until very recently, there have been no official specifications for that flag. So the design of the palmetto and the exact size and orientation of the crescent on the flag are up to the manufacturers of the flag. But there's a, a, a government involved, I think he's a lobbyist, uh, a, a guy who's involved with government in South Carolina who has taken on the charge of getting a law enacted that will specify the South Carolina flag. And I think there's a a commission or a group that's been authorized now to come up with those official specifications. Well, I will, I will dig into that. So thank you. Yes. So that, that dovetails perfectly into, I discovered you in a couple of different ways on Roman Mars and then my friend Hugh Weber. And that led me to buying your book, good, good flag, bad flag. So it'd be a great place to, to dig into is what makes a good flag and, and what are those five rules about good flag, bad flag? I'll start and tell you the origin story of good flag, bad flag. As a flag collector, collecting the flags of places I travel to, I was interested in flags. And in 1985, when living in San Francisco, I encountered NAVA, the Flag Studies Organization of North America, through a brochure in the flag store on Polk Street in San Francisco. 
I joined NAVA, uh, attended an international congress that year in Spain, but was only peripherally involved in, in the organization and, and flag studies. Two years afterwards, however, because I lived in San Francisco, I helped organize the International Congress of Flag Studies held there that year, which also was a meeting of NAVA. So without ever having been to a NAVA meeting, I organized a NAVA meeting, and that got me introduced to a lot of the people involved in flag studies in North America. A few years later, I was invited to be the editor of the scholarly journal of NAVA, which is called Raven, and I served in that role for 17 volumes, 17 years worth of Ravens. But uh, I still wasn't very involved in coming to meetings. Uh, however, my son, who was a middle schooler at the time, did some flag research and was interested in presenting that. And so in 1999, we attended the International Congress, which was being held in Victoria, B.C. that year. We live in Portland, so it was a reasonable drive for us to get to Victoria. So my younger son and, and my wife and my older son and I all went to Victoria to the meeting of NAVA, which was also the International Congress. And my son, 13 years old at the time, presented his paper on tri-bar flags. It was a tremendous success, and he actually won the driver award for best paper at that meeting. That was a wonderful part of the meeting. An ancillary piece of the meeting, this is the NAVA meeting in Victoria in 1999, was a panel of flag merchants, Doreen Braverman from Canada, Jim Farrigan from San Francisco, and Peter Orensky from Connecticut. And the three of them talked about flag design and the general low quality of the flag designs that customers brought into their stores to be made into flags. They decried the very poor quality of these flag designs. And after a, an entire workshop of back and forth about terrible flag designs, I stood up and addressed the entire group and said, how dare we as flag experts complain about flag design and criticize the public's flag designs and say they break all the rules, they violate the principles of flag design, if we don't tell them what those principles are. How dare we scold them for not following the rule book if we haven't told them what the rule book is? I volunteer to draft the guidebook to flag design. So I raised my hand and said, I will do that and bring it back at the next International Congress of Vexillology in 2001 in York, England. So over the next two years, I gathered all of the writing that I could find from colleagues on flag design going back many years. And I found about 20 different people who had written very good information or guidance on flag design. And I spread it out all, all on the table and I looked at it all and I said, what are the common themes here? I found that everybody was too verbose Everybody spent a lot of time telling people what to do and, and not telling them what not to do. So I realized there were two things I had to do in that, in that guidance. One, 
I had to boil it down to very key, short principles. And the second was, I had to show people what to do and what not to do. In other words, provide the positive examples and the negative examples. And that, in fact, led to the name of the book, Good Flag, Bad Flag. In some ways, it's an unfortunate name because flags aren't bad. Flag designs may be bad. And what we really meant was this flag used as a negative example does not follow the design principle we're trying to show. So doesn't follow the design principle isn't nearly as catchy as bad. So uh, in our rework of this book recently, we changed the titles under the examples from good and bad to yes and no. But uh, in 2001, the first draft of Good Flag, Bad Flag came out. By 2006, we had found a designer and created a hard copy 16-page booklet that then was available to the public. In 2010 or so, podcaster Roman Mars did an interview about flags with me. It was his sixth podcast, and that got him going on flags. In 2015, Roman Mars was invited by the TED Talk conference organizers to present a TED Talk on city flag design. Roman Mars presented a TED Talk called why city flags may be the worst design thing you never noticed. It was a tremendous success, and it has been seen over six million times. In that podcast, Roman Mars shows great city flag designs, terrible city flag designs, makes the argument for why a city should have a great flag design, and calls on his listeners to find out what their city flag designs look like and says, if you like it, even if it's a bad design, fly it. But if you don't like it, you should try to get it changed. He said, there's a scourge of bad city flag designs out there and they must be stopped. And he called on his listeners to engage in flag design. As a result, hundreds of cities across the United States have engaged in flag design or flag redesign. And well over 100 have adopted new flags and many more have flag design efforts underway. And, and so, Ted, with that, you're, you've been consulting with, with a fair amount of cities to help in that process? Yes, because I wrote Good Flag, Bad Flag and I'm referenced in the Roman Mars TED Talks, cities tracked me down and asked me for advice about their city flag redesign efforts. As a result, I've learned a lot about city flag redesign process. I'm not a designer. I, I'm an editor. I took other people's ideas about flag design guidance and edited them down into a presentable booklet that could be easily summarized and people could act on it. But what I've also learned is many things about the do's and don'ts, the uh, ways to go about it and the pitfalls of flag redesign process. Peter Ansoff, who's the president of NAVA, has said flag design is the easy part. 
And by that he means flag redesign and getting a flag adopted by a city is 90% process, political, public relations. It's only 10% flag design. And most people who begin to engage in flag redesign for a city focus on that 10% of what that person thinks the design should look like or just focuses on, we've got a terrible design in our city, we should change the flag, and don't understand that the other 90% is where all the action is. It has to do with the decision-making by the officials. It has to do with getting the officials' attention that this is something that's worthy of them spending political capital on. There's the entire process of how to get a design through the public or from a professional designer to the point where it's ready to be adopted. And then even when it's adopted, the story is not done. How does it get rolled out? Where does it get raised? Where should it be raised? How is it used? Uniform patches, the livery of public service vehicles, asset tags on city items, tourist tchotchkes and such. There's all kinds of things that happen after a flag is adopted. I've come to learn many of these things through talking with cities as they go through these processes. And I end up being an advisor to many cities on these processes as they engage in them. I would say there's a couple dozen that I'm talking to right now. And sometimes I end up on the flag committee. Uh, they invite me to be one of the members of their committee. That's uh, the case in Salt Lake City, Utah right now. Sometimes they ask me to coach the committee. Evansville is uh, doing a flag design effort in this coming year, and I'm addressing their committee uh, in three days. Uh, in Salt Lake City, also, I served as the coach to the committee, the, the person who helped the process go along as they narrowed down over 600 submissions to a final eight that they presented to the public for review and comment. Uh, sometimes I help cities by, by offering up a cadre of members of NAVA, our flag studies group, to act as judges for the flags of the flag submissions. Sometimes, for example, a city may have run a flag competition and received, say, 500 submissions, and before its committee starts working on them, would like to somehow call them down or do a pre-sort of them. We have a group of members of NAVA who love evaluating flag designs, and I will share those 500 with that group, and those who want to be involved will engage with those 500 designs and give each one a rating from zero to 10 and give the flag selection committee of the city a head start in winnowing down the group of flag designs. That sounds great. And who, now, would, have, and who would have thought, you know, that, you know, you look sometimes to, to the average person, I'm, I have a design background, so I, I, I pay attention to flags, but I think a lot of people, you see it, but obviously flags have a place in our heart. We, we put a hand on our chest to one with this country. City flags, like you said, that are good. I notice the city of Chicago's flag. So I'm curious because you kind of set the table. You and I in our prep call talked about 
the city of Chicago flag. Number one, why is it a good flag? And, and why, how has it been so adopted that, yeah, you know, I, I mentioned to you, I, I looked at, the, at some of the things with the police and, and, and the unfortunate situation to where, the, where police officers have died in the line of duty. They're buried with that flag. And so why is that flag, why does it work and why was it adopted so well? Let me answer that question and your previous question and tie them together. The basic principles of flag design as articulated in good flag, bad flag are simplicity, meaningful symbolism, few colors, no lettering or seals, and distinctiveness. The first principle is keep it simple. A flag should be so simple that a child can draw it from memory. The second principle is use meaningful symbolism. The flag's images, colors, or patterns should relate to what it symbolizes. The third principle is use two to three basic colors. Limit the number of colors on the flag to three, which contrast well and come from the standard color set. The fourth principle is no lettering or seals. Never use writing of any kind or an organization of seal. And the fifth principle is be distinctive or be related. Avoid duplicating other flags, but use similarities to show connections. Now I'll just talk a little about each of the principles. The first principle, simplicity. A flag is usually seen on a flagpole fluttering in the distance on a piece of cloth and seen from both sides. Under those circumstances, only simple designs work. Complex designs can't be seen at a distance. In fact, complex designs are more expensive to make, which limits their use. Meaningful symbolism. Americans tend to think of the symbolism of a flag being putting a symbol on a flag. Americans have a narrow view of symbolism that it's something put on a flag. If you ask an American how will we make our flag? They'll say, what will we put on our flag? A European will say, what will our flag look like? By this, I mean that symbolism can be carried not just by a thing that's put on a flag, but by the colors of the flag or how the flag field is divided. A great example of that is the flag of Ukraine. It's a light blue bar over a golden yellow bar. It's two horizontal stripes. Many people will look at that and say, I don't see where the symbol is. Where is the symbol on that flag? And Ukrainians will say, that's Ukraine. That's the sky over a wheat field. That's that's an image of what Ukraine looks like. So without putting a symbol on the flag, the flag is hugely symbolic. And so that's an important part of symbolism on a flag. With colors, more than three colors makes the flag more expensive and makes it more complex. Also, the flag, unless it's printed as a smaller flag, if it's gonna be a large flag, it's gonna be sewn out of flag fabric And there's a limited number of colors that are made by the flag fabric mills, probably about 40 colors, not the million you can get on your 
computer. So you need to specify colors that come from the standard color set. And in fact, the big six are usually enough, red, white, blue, green, yellow, and black. Also in colors, it's important to separate light colors with dark colors and dark colors with light colors. In other words, don't put yellow right next to white or black right next to blue. The fourth principle, no lettering or seals. Many people confuse the idea of a flag with, say, a parade banner that says League of Women Voters voting in this parade. In fact, letters just don't belong on a flag. A flag is a graphic symbol. It's not a verbal symbol. In fact, we would laugh if we saw a national flag that said France on it. I mean, it's, it's just risible that someone would write the name of their country on their flag. But we have states that write the name of their state on the flag. And the reason for that is that so many state flags are indistinguishable from each other that you need to write the name to say, this is what it, this is what it means. But if you have to write the name of your place on your flag, then that means your symbolism has failed. Furthermore, from a practical standpoint, if you put letters on a flag, that means on the back they're going to be backwards. So in Kansas, for example, it says Sasnak on the back. If you try to make them correct, then you need a triple thickness of fabric. You need the letters, then the fabric, then the letters again. And that makes the flag expensive and it doesn't fly very well. The other part of no lettering and no seals is seals. A seal belongs on a piece of paper, 15 inches from your eye, not moving and on one side. Flags are 50 or 100 feet away on a piece of cloth, flapping and seen from both sides. Seals are too complex to be seen at a distance. They don't belong on flags. But here's another concept. It's a subtle concept, but it's important. The seal belongs to the government. The flag belongs to the people. And I often see in cities, city employees and city officials with blinders on, they can't see the difference between the city government and the city as a whole. The city government is the officials and the employees of the city and the tax base and, and everything, tending the roads and the parks and the police and the fire and all these commissions and things. That's the city government. But the city itself is that government plus all the people and the businesses and the institutions and the physical space and the wildlife and the landscape. Everything is the city as a whole. And city officials often confuse those. They'll say, oh, it's the city's responsibility to fix those potholes. What they really mean is it's the city government's responsibility to fix those potholes. But because they confuse the city government with the city, they confuse what the flag should represent. And they end up creating a flag to represent the city government rather than the entire city. And the common way for a city 
to create a flag to represent the city government is to put the ultimate symbol of the city government, the city seal, on a flag. And usually it's the, a big seal on a solid background and it's uh, indistinguishable from other flags at a distance. But that's the, the standard city flag. And it represents the misunderstanding that the seal belongs to the government, the flag belongs to the people. The fifth principle is be distinctive or be related. The basic idea there is you want flags that represent you and aren't confused with other places, especially other places that are peers of yours. In other words, it's okay if your city flag is very similar to some other country's flag because they're never going to be flown you know, from the same group of flagpoles. But American state flags are terribly duplicative. There's a historical reason for that, but 24 out of 50 American state flags have a seal on a blue background, and they can't be distinguished from each other at a distance. Well, some can because they write the name of the state on it, Montana or Anitnam on the back. Those are opportunities for the states to represent themselves much better. Sometimes it's great to have a design show connectedness to the group that the organization or the place is part of or to some other entity. So, for example, in West Africa, the flags are almost all red, yellow, and green. And I'll confess, I don't know my West African flags, but I know that when I see one of them, they're from West Africa because they share this common design element of three colors that is unusual in the rest of the world. There are very few other national flags that use that combination in those ways, mm. Bolivia being an exception. But West African flags all tend to look like they're part of a group. And they well, I don't know if you could tell, that was the third time we had an interruption. Thank goodness Ted didn't want to give up. And so we were able to pick back up, get everything recording again, and Ted's going to come back in on the conversation on relatedness. Another example of related designs is the Nordic countries. Each of them has the so-called Scandinavian cross on it. Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland. And when you see one of those flags, you know that that's one of the Nordic countries. So that's the flip side of distinctiveness is relatedness. Another example of relatedness is some former French colonies in Africa that use a vertical tri-bar that echoes the French flag. You can tell that that was a former French colony because it uses the image of a French flag just with one or two of the colors changed. That's interesting. So you asked about the Chicago flag. Yes. Chicago's city flag is one of the most successful designs and most widespread flags in its city. It was adopted, I think, in 1915 and 
has been part of the fabric of the city ever since. Heist the Jolly Roger! Ah, the pirates are raising the Jolly Roger on us. So you're going to have to come back as we continue our conversation with Ted Kay on flags. In the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to Good Flag, Bad Flag. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at Gino at thesharedship.com. So our quote for this episode, as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sell forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Herman Melville. Until next time, be safe, be bold, be adventurous, be courageous. This is your captain and pirate, Gino Church. <laughs>